The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, September 24th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yahoo reported today, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the official in charge of the special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation, has verbally resigned, according to one person familiar with the matter. So reported Yahoo. Wait a minute. Is that the website Yahoo or just some random Yahoo? No, it was Yahoo's news. And it echoed Axios' Jonathan Swan. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has verbally, quote, offered to resign in discussions with the White House Chief of Staff, Kelly, according to a source close to Rosenstein, thus riling the markets and me. I'm a market of one, and I began to develop agoraphobia over this Rosenstein thing. He offers to resign. No, he's fired. No, he's neither. They'll wait until Thursday. We're talking about the fulcrum of the Mueller investigation. Can we get it right? Or can we, even better, just shut up if we don't know? We cannot. Is he offering his resignation? Is he resigning? Is he getting fired? I, I, I'm, I'm confused why there's so much confusion. And I wish I could help with your confusion, but I too am confused with your confusion, as those who are watching right now are so confused. But listen, for the last two years, we've all been confused by the Trump presidency. And on CNN, where we just learned what the C stands for, I suppose, even after that arpeggio of incertitude, they still attempt to lure viewers with his online tease, Rod Rosenstein expects to be fired. Live updates. I searched for Rosenstein. I got that. It's like my first or second result, CNN.com, telling us live updates. How many updates can you give a discredited single source that dubiously confirmed your supposition? Here's another update. Why don't we wait to see what happens instead of anticipating what happens, especially because the man in charge of this country is a Schrodinger's cat type individual who is acutely aware of the experiment going on. What I'm saying is, even if the rest of us have been burned and aren't going to check in on the Rod Rosenstein expects to be fired live update, President Trump will. Oftentimes, we got the single source scoop of, um, you know, Trump staff losing patience, Trump seen as increasingly embattled. Sources say Trump has lost the confidence of blah, 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 increasingly isolated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've learned to deal with that. The cat lives. But with this one, let me let me channel Edward R. Murrow. I am a multiple Murrow Award winner. Let me channel Edward R. Murrow when I offer this suggestion. Lay the fuck off until you have your story buttoned up. I know the 2 p.m. ratings bump is really tempting, but this is the entire republic we're talking about. It's not a goddamn monetizable TikTok of what the president's thinking. It's potentially plunging the nation into chaos, and you're guessing, I guess. It's not helping. It's not fake news. It's indifferent news. Indifferent to the truth news, which is much worse. Or don't listen to me. I'm a single source. On the show today, I spiel, oh, it's kind of conceptual. I take you from the worst pro-Kavanaugh 
arguments to the worst anti-Kavanaugh arguments. And I actually spend a little time in the decent, let's all try to make a good decision arguments, which are really, really unpopular arguments. But first, California recently became the first state to make straws be available on request only. Now, this is not in fast food restaurants where the vast majority of straws are given out. It's in fine dining establishments. But if you want a straw, you got to ask for a straw. They're not going to give you a straw. What I'm saying is the environmental problem is solved, people. Okay, I'm not saying that. But I really wanted to get inside the fascinating, if narrow, issue of straws in the ocean. Dr. Dune Ives joins me. She is the one who first stigmatized the straw. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. One day, we might look on plastic straws as we do leaded gasoline, or as they used to call it, gasoline. There is a current trend. It's gaining steam to think about the use of plastic straws and to think about it quite harshly and possibly to eliminate it. But why? Where did this come from? How effective will a plastic straw ban be? It turns out a lot of the intellectual heft behind the idea comes from Dune Ives. Dune Ives is the executive director of the Lonely Whale Foundation, which is uh, ocean conservation is its main purpose. She also has a PhD in psychology, which will come into play, as you will hear. Hello, Dr. Ives. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, absolutely. What was the problem you were trying to solve? We know that, you know, depending on where you fall on the spectrum of conservative estimates, Somewhere between, you know, let's say roughly 500 million single-use plastic straws are used every day in the United States. By our estimates of all of the corporate shift from single-use plastic straws and all the city-level shift from single-use plastic straws, by the end of 2020 already we will have eliminated 8 billion single-use plastic straws globally. Now let's say just a fraction of those get into the marine environment. When they enter the ocean, rivers, lakes, Every single one of those plastic straws breaks down into microplastics. Microplastics are nearly impossible to get out of the marine environment, and they're finding their way into our food source, into, into our drinking water, into sea salt, for crying out loud. So we know that it's going to have some impact. But importantly, we have an entire globe of people now that are really focused in on single-use plastic pollution. And by doing that, hopefully we'll reduce single-use plastic pollution even more than we've done with the single-use plastic straw. How does a, a user, a would-be straw sucker in Kansas City and Denver who lives a 1,000 miles away from a coast, how might their straws get in the ocean, and how important it is, is it for them to give up straws? You know, a lot of us have forgotten the lessons that we learned in grade school, that every river and lake is also part of oceanic at large. So the Great Lakes are part of the ocean. So what happens in the Great Lakes ultimately is going to impact 
what is happening with our, our global ocean. And we know that straws are making their way into rivers. I mean, there's so much evidence for straw and microplastics in rivers and in lakes that having uh, impact inland, it, maybe it isn't as great as having impact in the coastal areas, um, but it still matters. So every straw matters. Every piece of single-use plastic that could get into rivers or into lakes matters as well, and it impacts local communities. So if you fish out of a lake, you fish out of a river, the last thing you're going to want to see is you're going to want to see plastic floating along with that fish because it's breaking into microplastics as well. So let's just stop putting plastic in the water, no matter where you live. Yes, but I have heard that, granted, they're not good for the environment, but I have read uh, very credible estimates that say of the plastics in the ocean, they account for 0.03%. Probably true. I have no reason to believe that that's not true. And I guess my question, I have a couple questions, but one is, it's so small and it will have so little actual impact. Why are you you convinced that if you tell people to give up straws, they do give up straws, and then we measure the impact and it's almost nothing, why do you think that will spur greater change and not just people being discouraged? What we're seeing with individuals and even companies that are addressing the single-use plastic straw to begin with is they quickly shift to the conversation of, okay, so what else can I do now? So it's a great example, too. So Tom Douglas Restaurants in Seattle was one of the early signer-ons for the Strawless in Seattle campaign that we ran, and we did a training with over 150 of their managers across every single one of their restaurants. And somebody raised their hand and they said, okay, I get the straw. I, I totally understand. We should not be using single-use plastic straws. But why do I get my oyster and shellfish in plastic bags that I can't recycle? That's the conversation that we're really expecting to see. And that's what we've started to see across the board, individuals, corporations, brands. Um, but if you look at like Bacardi, so we just partnered with Bacardi for a global campaign called The Future Doesn't Suck by reducing single-use plastic straws with their No Straws Pledge. Now they're looking at not only this global campaign with us, but they're also looking at source plastic reduction across operations and supply chain. Okay, and why do you think that, say, the Bacardi pledge isn't just an easy thing that won't hurt their bottom line, that gets them a lot of credibility? Why are you not just optimistic, but why do you think that there's proof that this will lead to greater change versus, you know, using getting a little bit of uh, cred because environmentalism is pretty trendy right now and this is a pretty... Uh, easy lift for a big company like that? When we looked for the next iteration of our straw campaign, we specifically sought out Bacardi. So Bacardi is, is the largest spirit company in the world. They engage with mixologists every single day across the globe. And we know that there are two very influential, at least in the developed, you know, kind of Western part of the world, there's two very influential types of people that are out there. One is your hairdresser. If you're, if you're a woman, you'll tell her your, your deepest, darkest secrets. Um, and the other one is your bartender. And, and there's a lot of conversation that you have with bartenders and a lot of influence that bartenders have regarding what comes into the bar, what they serve their customers. And so who better to really engage mixologists globally to start a conversation in every single bar, in every single restaurant, in every single hotel, in every single airport around the world about single-use plastic straws than Bacardi. So what we're fully expecting with their commitment, not just on this global straw campaign, that's not enough for us or for them, but really looking at how do you, how do you reduce plastic pollution across the board with a global company is we're really expecting that mixologists around the world are going to be inspired by that. And the direction that Bacardi takes, they're going to want to take as well. 
Do you mean by mixologist? Do you mean bartenders? I do. It's a nice fancy name, don't you think? Oh, okay. So, so you're <laughs> saying that if you get to Bacardi, bartenders will talk up the straw initiative. Not just straw. I, I think what we're seeing across the board is that people have moved beyond the straw. People have moved to what else can I do? We have a lot of single-use plastic bottles for sparkling water and still water in some restaurants around the world. We've got a lot of single-use plastic bags, to-go items in restaurants. So I think we're already seeing people move beyond the straw to looking at where else don't we need single-use plastic, and is there a way for us to replace single-use plastic with more sustainable materials or just remove it overall? The, The way that we talk about it at Lonely Well these days is that there isn't one solution. There isn't one thing we need to do. To solve for this, this plastic pollution crisis at scale, we've got to hit it from all angles. We have to reduce. We have to recover. We have to repurpose items. We have to replace. And if we all do our part, then we can actually solve for this crisis. This is solvable. Dunives is the executive director of The Lonely Whale. She is, uh, let us call her the intellectual foremother of the idea of banning the plastic straw. Thank you very much, Dr. Ives. Thank you so much for having me and for your interest. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in conjunction with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join us and the GIST's fellow politically-minded shows, Political Gab Fest, Trumpcast, Amicus, and El Gab Fest. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party. You'll also get to purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating. Get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. And now the spiel. Unlike Wallace Stevens and the Blackbird, I'm not going to give you 13 ways of looking at Brett Kavanaugh. Unlike Glenn Gould films, I'm not going to give you 32 shorties about Brett Kavanaugh. What I'm going to do is I will offer my delineation. Don't think of it in list form. That's a more vertical concept. Take that idea and turn it 90 degrees. Let us consider the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and accusation on a more horizontal axis. There are ways to think about Brett Kavanaugh from one extreme of florid denialism. No way he did it. He had six FBI investigations. And then we could go all the way back through the rational. We'll touch upon the rational, those defensible arguments, the necessary arguments. And then we'll come out the other side. And we'll talk about assertions and statements of fact that are anti-Kavanaugh and at the same time indefensible. So let's start with the dumbest thing said about Brett Kavanaugh by anyone withstanding. I'm sure there's some dude with a flag and two eagles in his Twitter emoji who said something worse on Twitter. But the dumbest thing said in dismissing Christine Blasey Ford's claims was said by Ralph Norman, Republican representative from South Carolina. Did y'all hear the latest late-breaking news from the Kavanaugh hearings? Ruth Bader Ginsburg came out that she was groped by Abraham Lincoln. I thought I was going to have to get back there, but we don't. Awful, awful. 
Now, especially because the standard de facto line, which was working as well as it goes, really the de minimis expression for a public official to take is something like, well, we want to see what she has to say. We uh, take the accusation seriously and let's give her a day in court. And then you debate about when that day is going to be. Will it be a Monday? Will it be a Thursday? We'll take her seriously and see what she has to say. And then whoever says that's not supposed to say anything else stupid. Now, who said something stupid, and this maybe wasn't as stupid as Ruth Bader Ginsburg getting groped by Lincoln, it was said, are you going to believe this, by the president of the United States himself. He undercuts the quite workable, let's see what she has to say, argument first at a rally where Sean Hannity showed up. So Trump was about to speak to ravenous crowds in Las Vegas, and then Sean Hannity grabbed him as if on the red carpet on the E-Network And Trump said this. Why didn't somebody call the FBI 36 years ago? I mean, you could also say, when did this all happen? What's going on? And then just to erase any doubt that he misspoke or was speaking off the cuff or didn't mean it, he tweeted, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, charges would have been brought immediately, filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. I ask that she bring those filings forward so that we can learn date, time, and place. Then a couple minutes later, the radical left lawyers want the FBI to get involved now. Why didn't someone call the FBI 36 years ago? It is remarkable that one of the worst things, and everyone had a chance to say something, but one of the worst things was said by the man, other than Brett Kavanaugh, with the most at stake, and also the man with the biggest megaphone. Well, it's not remarkable. That's Donald Trump. That's what he does. But no one except him was so stupid as to engage in the, if it really happened, why didn't she report it argument. Tens of thousands of people on Twitter, maybe more, under the hashtag, why I didn't report, answered the question. Throwing out such an ignorant, easily rebutted question undermined the idea that you haven't prejudged the judge. It badly discredits the person asking the question. It is a terrible tack to take. How can I prove it? Yeah, no one else went there. That's our president. By the way, Kellyanne Conway was asked by John Dickerson on CBS this morning about that very quote. Why didn't she come forward when it happened? Here's that exchange. Kellyanne, you say he takes him very seriously. He says, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford happened, she would have reported it immediately. We are looking at one tweet. That's Why didn't you put what... up everything he said last week, John? Be fair to him. How would that work? Fairness, the definition of fairness is let us put up everything the president said last week. Just run his Twitter feed live. And if everything he said includes terribly stupid things, we could just use the smokescreen of, oh, please refer back to the words that don't damn him. Maybe this is why Trump says everything, but also it's opposite. Because eventually the right answer will be there and then Kellyanne could get mad if you don't underline that one. Okay, so where we are on our continuum is stuff said uh, in defense of Kavanaugh that's unfair to the accuser, unfair to the process. We're going to now go to not as bad as Trump, not as bad as Norman, but not great. Here's Mitch McConnell speaking to supporters last Friday. Now, remember, Mitch McConnell is the most powerful Republican senator, and he's vowed to run a fair process that gets to the bottom of the accusations. Judge Kavanaugh will be on the United States Supreme Court. So we'll do a thorough vetting and then find the accusations not credible? Or is it we'll give her her say and not care what that say is? Which one is it? So my friends, keep the faith. Don't get rattled by all of this. We're going to plow right through it and do our job. 
Now, Plow Ride Through It, not a great thing to say, was a little worse than Nevada Republican Dean Heller's words on a conference call. We got a little hiccup here with the Kavanaugh nomination. We'll get through this and we'll get off to the races. I I think it's not as bad because Dean Heller isn't Mitch McConnell and the hiccup isn't saying he will be on the court and will plow right through it. I think I think Dean Heller's words aren't as bad because he's Dean Heller and Mitch McConnell is more important. Also, maybe you can argue that plowing right through it is a little more aggressive than dealing with a hiccup. So those phrases, I think rightly, did stick in the craw of Senator Patty Murray of Washington. Here she was on Meet the Press. The majority leader saying we're going to plow right through this like it's this petty little thing over here. Uh, People saying, well, she's got the votes. We're just going to get her through. We got to deal with this hiccup. That kind of conversation is exactly what leads to many people in this country, women and men, saying they don't get it. Okay, but then Patty Murray laid out this criteria. That, that it should be a presumption of innocence and then have a fair process. We should have a presumption of innocence, which sounds like a sound legal principle, except Patty Murray's applying it to the accuser. So what does that mean? She says, we used to instinctively disbelieve an accuser when the accusation was rape. Okay, um, that's somewhat true. We certainly were overly dismissive in general, but not always. But now what we need to do is not presume that she's lying. Okay, I'm totally fine with not presuming that an accuser is lying. But what does a presumption of innocence mean? How does it work? Well, Kamala Harris was pretty clear about what that means. It comes down to credibility, to your point, Gail, and it's going to be about uh, listening to what each party has to say, but I believe her. She repeated that a few times in that one interview, which was also with CBS. She cited, Kamala Harris did, her experience as a former prosecutor, as if to buttress the idea of believing the accuser in some basis in law or in justice overall. Now, I do have to say, We've jumped over the category of reasonable things to say about the process, and we're dwelling in the category of speaker who doesn't want Kavanaugh on the court and is saying some things that are a bit outrageous. So let me jump back a second and tell you what the sweet spot should be for getting to the truth and doing the right thing, and it's to strongly advocate for an honest process to look into the allegations as best we can. We should advocate that we not come to conclusions before we see evidence, and also that we not interpret absence of evidence as evidence of absence. This happened over the weekend when some people who were said to be at the party said they can't remember the party. Aha, it didn't happen. No, like I said, that doesn't prove much. And we should also say, I think the best practice would be to say, we're certainly not going to discredit Dr. Blassie Ford's accusation beforehand, but neither will we convict Judge Kavanaugh beforehand, as it were. And if Dr. Blasey Ford's conditions are that we meet on Thursday, I think that's perfectly acceptable. That's the least we owe the process, the process for as best we can trying to get to the truth. That's not exactly what was said. Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Mazzie Hirono, who are from New York and Hawaii respectively, took the I believe the accuser route. Here's Hirono. They need not only to be heard, but to be believed. Huh? How can you caution the pro-Kavanaugh forces not to prejudge when that's exactly what you're doing? That's just blatantly inconsistent. 
Then during this press conference that I'm playing these clips from, the senators welcomed a few women who attended the same Washington, D.C. area high school as Christine Blasey Ford. But in some cases, they attended the high school 20 years later. Hi, my name is Sarah Burgess, and I'm Holton Arms alumni. I'm class of 2005. I'm here today to share a letter which has been signed by over 1,000 Holton alumni in support of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. We believe Dr. Blasey Ford, and we are so grateful to her for coming forward and sharing her story. As we say in the letter, her experience is consistent with experiences that we have heard and lived, and many of us are survivors ourselves. Class of 2005, so that speaker wasn't born when the alleged attempted rape took place. Her expression of belief is essentially meaningless. It's fine to express support. And if an individual citizen who shares the alma mater wants to opine that she believes her fellow alum, even as a corrective to an era of disbelief, that's fine. That's fine to offer your opinion. I can't say that that woman class of 2005 was wrong to do what she does, but as substance, it's as meaningless as that letter signed by 65 women who said they knew Kavanaugh in high school, and yet, of course, they couldn't possibly know what went on in a room that they weren't in and that no one talked about. So I guess we chalk this up to a set of high school supporters canceling out a set of high school accusers when there was no substance to anything any of those high school people who weren't in the room said. Let's go to Kirsten Gillibrand. She offered her unequivocal statement of belief. I believe Dr. Blasey Ford because she's telling the truth. And then she did so again for emphasis. I believe her because she's telling the truth. Let's talk about the politics for a second. I see why the senators came out so strongly for Blasey Ford. These statements were being made at a time when they were in negotiations. The committee and Blasey Ford and her lawyers were in negotiations as to when the testimony would take place, and Blasey Ford wanted Thursday. So the more forceful you could advocate for Blasey Ford, the more likely you would get a Thursday date. That's politics. That's fine. And if what this does is serve to embarrass the 11 male Republicans on the Judiciary Committee— I think that's totally fair game. Maybe the Republicans shouldn't have stocked the committee with only men. Maybe, to go a step further, they should elect more female senators. Here's the gender breakdown. 11.7% of Republican senators are female. 34.6% of Democratic senators are female. Actually, it's higher than that, but I counted Bernie Sanders and Angus King in the uh, Democratic total. Republicans could have even though they only have uh, 12% of their caucus to choose from, staffed this very important committee with at least one woman, but they decry the optics of inclusion and they have more disdain than appreciation for diversity. So maybe they'll pay the price by having some awkward moments or having a female staffer ask questions because you were too afraid to do so. So I think it's good for Democrats to do what they can to force the Republicans' hand. But is reaching for the default to be, let us all suspend critical thinking when it comes to an allegation. Is that a good thing? To have the, you know what we're going to do in order to get to justice? We're going to say, once an accusation is leveled, no more judgment. We need to believe the accuser, full stop. That's the position of the Democratic Party. I think this is a terrible tact to take. For one thing, it's not the definition of justice. For another, what? 
Democrats are never going to elect a president and that president couldn't ever possibly nominate a man to the court. Well, when that happens, of course, that man is going to be accused of something. It's all but guaranteed. And then the I believe her, I believe the accuser because for too long women weren't believed. I mean, those senators are going to be embarrassed by what they said. The thing is, not everyone is saying this. Haven't seen Dianne Feinstein say it. I haven't heard Judiciary Committee member Amy Klobuchar say it, and she's a former DA. And here's another voice who has had many opportunities to say, I believe her, I believe the accuser. And she refrains from saying that because she's a law professor. This is Anita Hill on the PBS NewsHour. We can't promise her an outcome in a fair hearing. But what we ought to be able to promise her is a fair hearing and a thorough investigation. And that, and that right there should be the standard. So we've gone through the continuum. We started with the bad arguments from the pro-Kavanaugh forces. We've gone all the way to the unfair arguments from the anti-Kavanaugh forces. But there, that, what Anita Hill just said, that is the unassailable good argument. And I hope it wins the day. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname. They are the Gist producers. We have two sources on that. They are a person close to Pierre and a person close to Daniel. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She sits next to Pierre, who sits next to Daniel, who sits next to me. The seating chart may help you to decode our sourcing here. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's still stuck on Blackbird method number seven. Something about the shadow of an equipage for blackbirds, equipage, not sure how that works. The gist, Barbara Mandrell and I both attended the same high school. She graduated Oceanside High School in 1967. I graduated Oceanside High School in 1990. Also, you should know that her Oceanside High School is in Oceanside, California, and mine was in Oceanside, New York, but still, I can attest that I do not believe she committed that act of vandalism in the teacher's parking lot. Umpro depro duperu, and thanks for listening.